Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. If this is your first time here at Modern Day Debate, want to let you know we are a neutral platform that hosts debates on science, religion, and politics. I'm your host, James Coons, and we want to let you know, no matter what walk of life you come from, no matter where you fall on all of these issues, we hope you feel welcome. And so thanks for being here with us. It's going to be a fun one today. And I want to let you know a couple of other things. One is that we are thrilled to let you know we are also on podcast. So hey, if you want to listen to Modern Day Debate on podcast, you can also hear all of these live debates there as well as they're uploaded usually within a week. And also want to let you know, for today's debate format, it's going to be kind of short and sweet. So we're going to have about roughly 10-minute openings from each speaker, and then we're going to have about 45 minutes of open conversation, and then maybe up to 30 minutes of Q&A. So please do try to get those questions in early, and if you tag me with at Modern Day Debate, it makes it easier for me to get every question in that list for the Q&A. So with that, going to introduce the speakers. We're thrilled to have them here. And so Alex, has been a while. I think it's back all the way back to last March, so we're thrilled to have you here. He'll be taking the affirmative on today's debate question. And so, if you have not, by the way, congrats, Alex. Have to let people know that Alex just hit 400,000 YouTube subscribers, so a juggernaut in the world of YouTube debate and influence, you could say. And so we're thrilled to have you here to make the case on behalf of veganism. If you could share, Alex, what people can expect to find at your links, that would be excellent. And once again, thanks for being here. Uh, much appreciated. That's a very kind opening. Uh, yes, if you go to my channel, you will find a mixture of advocacy for uh, vegan philosophy from an ethical perspective, uh, as well as some discussion on the philosophy of religion, as well as a podcast that I run speaking to various uh, debaters and speakers in the field. Um, and I trust that the links are in the description of this video. Absolutely, they sure are. That includes Alex's YouTube as well as his TikTok. So check those out, folks. And welcome back, Smokey Saint. Glad to have you back. Also linked down in the description, in particular, his YouTube channel. And so thanks for being here, Smokey. If you'd like to share what people can find at your link, we'd love to hear it. Thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it, James. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Yeah. Hi, folks. Absolutely. Um, unlike my my very suave and collected and charismatic counterpart, who is uh, definitely has delivery much like uh, a verbal silk, you'll find me to, to be a bit more like, uh, you know, sandpaper, razor blades and salty lemon juice. So that's kind of the type of thing you'll find on my channel, but also a bit more of an open exchange environment. We host lots of open mics. We do after shows for lots of debates that are done here in modern day debate. And we always welcome people to come in and share their perspectives and opinions and we are a free speech environment so we want people to come in and share their thoughts unfiltered and organically so uh, I do run the channel uh, Smoky Saint you'll find the link down below and we are actually doing a debate after show today as well for the two debates happening on modern day debate the one for abortion and of course this one and that'll be later tonight at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time so go down there and set your notification and come join and give your opinions Gotcha. Thanks so much, Smokey. And with that, we'll kick it into the opening statement. So I've got the timer set for roughly 10 minutes, and that's flexible. We can give you an extra minute if you need. And so, Alex, thanks so much. The floor is all yours. 
Well, thanks. Um, maybe I should just stick a stopwatch on here to make sure I don't ramble on forever, which is what I have a tendency to do. Um, as I've been delivering the same kind of talk, the same kind of points over and over again in various uh, virtual talks for universities, um, because this topic, I'm afraid to say, is a fairly easy one to argue, in my opinion. In fact, I believe that veganism being a moral obligation is one of the most ethically obvious obligations that we hold. And the reason that I think it's so important, and one of the reasons I describe it as the most important moral uh, emergency that we're currently facing, uh, is not due to the specific value on which I put upon the victims, but due to the fact that if you ask people in the street what they think about human trafficking or global poverty or any of these sorts of things, they'll tell you without hesitation that they think that they're terrible and need to be eradicated from the earth. But if you ask them what they think about factory farming, about animal agriculture, which is responsible not just for untold levels of animal cruelty, but also environmental catastrophe, contribution to the risk of future pandemics as bad or worse than COVID-19 that we're currently dealing with, our biggest contributor to antibiotic resistance and one of the biggest things you can do for your health, not only do they fail to condemn the animal agricultural industry uh, for being the villain on these five topics, uh, but they also continue to be the very cause for its existence by continuing to pay for the products of animal agriculture. My point is a fairly simple one. I, one of the first things I should mention is to clear up some misconceptions about veganism. No vegan is under the misapprehension that we're not responsible for any kind of animal suffering. Everybody's responsible for some form of, form of animal suffering. Veganism is by definition a minimization to the highest extent practicable of all forms of animal suffering. It's an extension of what is one of the most basic ethical principles shared almost unanimously, certainly across secular morality, and I believe implicitly present in religious morality too, which is that the avoidance of suffering where unnecessary should be attained. That's not to say that suffering never occurs, but where suffering occurs and where we're inflicting it, we need to be justified in doing so. And that's one of the first points to make, is that many people think that veganism is the active thing. It's the, it's the affirmative position. And in many ways it is. It, it, it's a position that needs to be defended. But being under no illusion that by purchasing animal products, you are implicitly accepting an ideology in your own right. By handing over money, paying for somebody to force animals into gas chamber or to have a bolt put in their head, to be separated from their calves, to be uh, suffocated in bags, to be ground up in industrial macerators as happens to chicks in the egg industry. By paying that money, you are economically speaking, demanding for these things to continue and thereby implicitly accepting an ideology which says that you have a right to do so. I must have missed the memo on the idea of people having the right to pay for this kind of animal cruelty to be inflicted for the sake of a cheeseburger. Um, this is one of the things that I that, that I would need to be convinced of to uh, understand why people don't see it as morally obligatory, morally obligatory to abstain um, from purchasing these products. Of course, veganism is uh, slightly more complicated and nuanced in the fact that there are many different ways of uh, procuring animal products. There are so-called better farms and worse farms. But the fact of the matter is that whilst everybody likes to say that I try to make sure my meat comes from an ethical source, I try to make sure I eat organic free-range eggs, firstly having no idea what those terms even mean and what the legal restrictions on them are, uh, it remains true that around 99% of the animal products consumed, at least in the United States, come from factory farms. right? And so if you are somebody who buys food from your local supermarket, or from McDonald's, or from any restaurant that you find on the high street, then you're paying for this factory farming, this, this nightmarish industry of factory farming, 
and you'll need to justify yourself in doing so. And unless you can identify exactly where you could find meat or other animal products, which are procured in the strangely specific ethical uh, conditions in which people like to, to, to present to say that there are some ethical ways to, to consume animal products, unless you can identify exactly where they are and guarantee that every single time you ever consume an animal product, that that's where it comes from, then you de facto have to go vegan and abstain from purchasing animal products until you know they come from an ethical source. And then there's a discussion to be had about whether those so-called ethical sources are even ethical. Endemic to animal agriculture is the exploitation of animals. A lot of people think that the, the, the kind of case against animal sufferings to do with not wanting to kill animals, but it's not as simple as that. It's about wanting to reduce the amount of suffering that they go through. And that's why vegetarianism isn't enough. Uh, in the milk industry, cows produce milk for the same reason we do. They're mammals. They need to be pregnant uh, and have children in order to produce milk. So they're forcibly impregnated. Uh, and when, when their calf is born, because that calf is going to want the milk, the milk is being produced for the calf after all, the calf is separated from the mother and taken away, which causes the same kind of psychological distress that it would do if you did it to a human being. And that uh, mother cow will continually go through that cycle of forcible impregnation, separation from their calves. And those calves might be bolt gunned in the head, as around 70,000 calves in the UK are per year for veal. Um, that cycle will continue until the mother can no longer produce any milk, at which point She's sold to a slaughterhouse, and that's the thanks that we give her for providing us with these products. And I'll remind you that the reason this is happening is because you go into Starbucks and you order a latte. Right? The exploitation of animals on such an unimaginable scale, and the scale is unimaginable, uh, unimaginable by the way. I, I wrote an essay not long ago when there was a lot of uh, noise around a contestant on a TV show called Love Island, who uh, it, it transpired that he was a trophy hunter, and there were very public calls for him to be kicked off the program because people couldn't believe that he was going on these safaris and shooting wild animals and taking pictures next to them. People were disgusted. For a point of reference, 70,000 animals per year are killed by trophy hunters, generally considered to be a bad thing, fairly disgusting. I'd be interested to hear what uh, Mr. Saint Smokey, if I may, has to say on an issue like that, or things like dog hunting or whatever it may, or, or uh, dog fighting, these kinds of things. I wonder if uh, our ability to exploit pigs Cows and sheep would also extend to all of the animal kingdom and perhaps even some humans, depending on the characteristics that they have in common. Uh, 70,000 animals killed by trophy hunters per year. The same number of chickens are killed for food every 32 seconds. 32 seconds. It's difficult to conceptualize, it's impossible to conceptualize the level, the number of animals that we're talking about here. We're talking about tens of billions. A hundred billion people, or thereabouts, have ever lived on planet Earth. There have only been about a hundred billion human beings ever alive on planet Earth, ever. And we're approaching that number of non-human animals being slaughtered every single year to satiate an addiction to the taste of their flesh and secretions. And that doesn't include sea life. If you include sea life, the number goes in to the trillions. Uh, lots of people like to fall back on the idea that by buying so-called free-range organic uh, animal products, they're doing their bit. Um, but I should make you aware, if, if you think that this is the case, that uh, free-range chickens can still be housed in barns at a density of nine chickens per square meter. Not only this, but in the egg industry, because they're genetically engineered differently to the chickens used for meat. Uh, the males are completely useless because the males aren't going to lay eggs. So the males are culled at birth. And this is industry standard practice across all industrialized egg production, including free range and organic farms. 
which means that as soon as these chicks are born, if they're male, then they're immediately killed. And this is done either by throwing them onto a conveyor belt and into an industrial macerator to be ground up alive, suffocated in a plastic bag under the weight of other chicks or under the bag, or in the words of the British Egg Information Service, humanely gassed, if there isn't such a contradiction in terms uh, present anywhere else in our ethical thinking. Uh, the challenge is this. It's, it's a matter of consistency. It may be asked what my meta-ethical position is, how I justify morality or ethics or anything of this sort. And these are interesting questions and I'm happy to address them. However, I think that they distract from the point because the argument that I make is one from consistency, which is this. If you think it is wrong to harm human beings in this way or particularly other animals in this way, such as a dog, if you're the kind of person who, if you were walking down the street, saw somebody beating up a dog for no other reason than the thrill they got from it, if you're the kind of person who would stop them from doing so, and yet simultaneously the kind of person who pays for pigs to be forced into gas chambers, I believe that you're harboring a moral inconsistency that needs to be immediately addressed. Here's the challenge that I would have um, for my opponent this evening, which is this. I will assume, for the, for the sake of argument, although this may not be true, I don't know, uh, that you believe that if we were to take a human being and force that human being into a gas chamber, that would be an unethical thing to do. I want to then take the situation, uh, the majority of pigs in my country at least, pigs uh, killed for slaughter, are killed similarly by forcing them into a gas chamber. Now, I wouldn't wish to draw an equivalency between human beings and other animals. There are many, many important differences between humans and other animals, but I want to identify these specific differences that justify the difference in treatment. That is to say, if I took that pig, and if you don't like the gas chamber example, you can use whatever kind of farming method you think is fine. If you think it's okay to give this pig a, a nice life and then bolt gun it in the head, I would imagine you'd think it would be wrong to do the same thing to a human being. And here's what you have to identify. Which, in what ways, and to what extent, is that pig different from a human being that justifies the difference in treatment? In other words, how like a pig, and in what ways, does that human being have to be to justify the treatment of that pig upon the human? If we took a human being in a gas chamber, and we gave him four legs instead of two, would it be okay to keep him in that gas chamber? Probably not. What if we change the human being's skin color? Now he's got pink skin. Still not okay to put him in the gas chamber. What if we lower the human being's intelligence? Right? What if we justify killing this human being on the basis of him being of a lower intelligence? I think that's an even more dangerous road to go down and is exactly how the Nazis justified uh, killing the mentally disabled in the Holocaust. But now we can keep going. And what we essentially have is a four-legged creature with pink skin of the intelligence of a pig, experiencing the world as a pig. Give it a curly tail if you like to. And you still haven't found the difference. At which point you'll say, now it's okay to kill this thing. Now it's okay to put this being in a gas chamber because we have this vague notion of it still somehow being human. But we have a being that walks like a pig, talks like a pig, thinks like a pig. Uh, and we've never, when making these changes, metamorphizing this human into the pig, we haven't come across the point at which we say it's now okay to, to kill this being. Um, but, we, but we now have what is essentially a pig. So we have a pig in this gas chamber now, which we still don't think it's right uh, to gas to death or kill in other means. And yet we have a pig in a gas chamber over here, and that's how you produce your breakfast in the morning. Unless you can identify what the morally relevant difference is, then you have two options. You can either say that actually it is okay to force a human being into a gas chamber if, say, they have lower intelligence, if, say, they have four legs. You can go that way, but I don't think that's a way that anybody wants to take. I've certainly never seen someone do it in, in, in my history of uh, debating this topic. But the other option is to say that we similarly don't have the right to kill that pig. 
and certainly not with the methods that are popularly used in today's animal agricultural industry. Um, there's a lot more to say, but I'm running up about 12 minutes, so I'll pass it on to, to Smoking. Thank see you how very we do. much. Appreciate that, Cosmic. And want to remind you folks, both of our guests are linked in the description. So if you'd like to hear more, you can hear more from both of them. And I also forgot to mention up at the very start, we are thrilled as Matt Dillahunty will be teaming up with Dr. Josh. That'll be against Stuart and Cliff Nettle, the father-son duo in real life. True story. That will be an exciting one at the end of the month. So forgot to mention at the start, if this is your first time here, consider hitting that subscribe button for reminders of juicy, controversial debates like that. And so thanks so much. We're going to kick it over to Smokey, as Alex had said. And so thanks so much, Smokey. The floor is all yours. Oh, Smokey, you're on mute. Sorry. Okay. No I actually did create a little, uh, thank you so much for that opening, Alex. That was uh, beautifully delivered. Thank you. Um, I actually did prepare a little opening, James. So if I could maybe share the screen. Um, let's see here. Sorry. Give me a sec. Oh, there it is. Okay. All right. Let me pull this up. There we go. And can you guys see it okay? Okay, beautiful. Awesome. All right. And I guess I will begin. Greetings and thanks to everyone for being here. I extend my sincerest of gratitude to James and Alex for making this debate happen. It is a great honor to be the opponent for Alex's auspicious return to modern day debate after about a year of absence. Clearly the audience is excited and I share in that excitement. Thank you very much, uh, at, uh, sorry. Thank you very much, Alex, for accepting me as your debate opponent today. I very much look forward to a fruitful exchange of ideas. Uh, the first point I'd like to summarize the ethical justification of veganism as I see it. Um, this is not an attempt to straw man, but to strike at the core justification of the veganism moral framework, which is commonly claimed to be epistemologically substantiated, but I believe it does actually have problems. By, to summarize, by nature of the moral agency possessed by humans, there is a moral obligation to minimize suffering while maximizing well-being of all sentient creatures. This is a common humanistic approach in an attempt to synthesize an objective moral framework, but I feel it falls short as it relies heavily on subjective arbitrary decisions of whoever is in power as to what constitutes minimal suffering and what constitutes maximum well-being. These two things must be subjectively discerned and can often be in stark opposition to each other. So using this as an objective standard is a bit deceptive to me. As a quick example of how this framework can fail in its real world application, the farmers in the USSR were seen as disposable so that central working communist machine could continue to keep working. What is sometimes claimed as the maximum benefit isn't realistically or consequentially the case at all. This moral framework can very easily be implemented as might makes right, which is usually also unsavory to the second moralist. At best, this moral argument is abductive with subjective premises and also generally subjective presuppositions hidden inside a strong general statement of ethics. Even if we conceded that the primary moral argument is deductively sound, the subjective components will create contention upon implementation. Since this is at its core an ethical debate, we cannot ignore the possibility of ethical consequences to any of the social policies that vegan activism seeks to accomplish. Is the ultimate result of what vegan activists seek to implement going to actually accomplish the goal that they seek in minimizing animal suffering? I don't think vegans tend to claim that their diets are 
attribute clairvoyant tendencies, and I've very rarely seen any attempt at considering economic or ecological impact of the policies they would seek to implement in order to chase after their perceived standard of higher virtue. Just to drill this home with the realistic fact of the policies of veganism is that those vegetables on your plate are absolutely not put there devoid of animal suffering. I actually think I heard Alex concede that point in his opening. This is an online article from the Anthropocene, and in it we see an important quote that shines a light on how little effort has actually been put forward to discern the actual animal suffering impact of farmland. To quote the article, we know that animals are harmed in plant production, write philosophers Bob Fisher and Andy Lamy, respectively, of Texas State University and the University of California, San Diego, in the Journal of Agricultural and Environmental Ethics. Unfortunately, though, we know very little about the scale of the problem. The truth is that I have found very few vegans actually considering if their policies and practices are ultimately leading to a decrease in animal suffering. Is it permissible in the vegan moral framework for millions, if not billions, of insects, rodents, and small herbivores to be killed in any territory that happens to be used to cultivate the vegetable staples that we will need to increase with our dependency on a vegan lifestyle. And this is justified so that a lesser number of cattle and pigs can be killed. Why is the sentient value of the life that is larger in scale prioritized over those on the smaller scale? Well, to me, because the other life is indeed just so small. It is rarely noticed and therefore rarely considered, but I think poses a major problem for the primary ethical justification of veganism. Now, not to be morbid here, but the very presence of modern humans in any ecosystem causes some form of animal suffering, something I think I also heard um, Alex concede to. And taking this moral framework to its absolute conclusion via reductio ad absurdum leads us to a potential justification for mass genocide of all humans on Earth. We as humans have decided of our own accord that it is virtuous for our species to propagate and spread. Yet everywhere that we do, we cause all manner of animal suffering as well as endure all manner of suffering ourselves while we implement massive suffering on other creatures. By the framework presented, I think it is easy to come to the conclusion that the best ultimate good to minimize all suffering is to remove, remove humans from the environment so that only those creatures devo devoid of moral agency can inflict any suffering, and humans themselves will not be around to experience any suffering. And therefore, we have maximized well-being of morally innocent, sentient life on Earth and maximally minimized the infliction of animal suffering on Earth. Granted, there is a counterpoint to this narrative that I will gladly volunteer. Humans suddenly removed from the equation would lead to mass extinction events of any animals that have come to rely upon humans for their ongoing survival, and many species would suffer and die off because of this. No more deer in the Midwest where humans have replaced the natural predators in the ecosystem. Marine ecosystems face potential ecological unbalance from thousands of years of fishing suddenly removed. No more sheep or chickens or cows which have next to zero chance of surviving in the wild without human protection and care. In truth, removing humans from the environment, which tends to be what vegans universally push towards, could have severe and multifaceted unethical conclusions. Yet this still abides by their ultimate framework. They don't actually need to deviate from it. If all the animals die off, there will be no more animal suffering with those animals and the ones left alive will experience maximal well-being. So is species ex extinction an acceptable path to minimization of suffering? And if not, then why? And if it is, why isn't human extinction an acceptable path as well? 
This leads us to ask another very important and fundamental question. Is it better to never live so that you never suffer? Is it actually a morally virtuous stance to claim that it is better that the animals used for meat would not exist so that they can't suffer? Is it better that each of these creatures get any chance at life at all, or better they not exist if that life is potentially full of suffering? While we can all generally agree that common factory farming practices are in desperate need of reform and the treatment of animals should not be socially neglected, is it better that these animals never existed than lived and suffered to be killed for the sustenance of the population? I will try to round this up with a final point in a thought experiment. Let's call it the two rabbits. I can't help but notice veganism as a moral manifest, modern manifestation of cultural ethics taken to their logical termination point. It is the type of perspective that would find difficulty emerging in any social environment that didn't experience a certain level of first world comfort and excess. People starving in third world countries aren't generally having ethical disagreements with where, they're, where they are getting their food. While the name the trait argument might be compelling on its surface, I'm not sure any vegan would be bold enough to claim that they think human suffering is simply potential collateral damage to the higher priority of preventing animal suffering. I look forward to unpacking that a little bit more with Alex because that was his challenge to me at the end. Therefore, prioritizing the well-being of animals over that of humans, yet this is what would be an unavoidable consequence of the implementation of vegan policies on social environments that don't have the same infrastructure or resource access that we enjoy in the Western world. I think veganism has been instigated by culturally emotive influence. We have been culturally conditioned to not just sympathize, but empathize with the animals around us, even going as far as to attribute human characteristics to them. We humanize the animals around us and treat their experiences as if, as if they were human experiences, just from a perspective of inferior intelligence. But this is not a fundamental fact that can be proven. We assume a humanistic experience on the animal and doing so end up reaching a point of attributing a human value. You. And this tends to manifest as vegan activism as I perceive it. Truth is, none of us actually have any idea about the life experience of a lesser being, and therefore the value we attribute to it is only one that we have subjectively supplanted onto the object. And I don't think we can ignore the idea that cultural conditioning is at play here. Many people in this country treat their pets like their quote-unquote children, even affectionately refer to them as such. This is not an objective cultural position shared in, any, in other cultures that are perfectly content to eat dogs and cats, which we find to just be beyond the pale. This is not because dogs and cats have some standard of ultimate objective higher value than pigs and cows that are often on our dinner plates. It just means that our cultural positioning has influenced our subjective moral standards, and this is a manifestation of this. As my finishing, let's conclude with this two rabbits thought experiment. Based upon human empathetic reasoning, which of these rabbits is better off to you and living a life of quote-unquote maximized well-being and minimized suffering? And I ask Ask all the, the vegans present here observing this debate to try and be honest with the answer and consistent with your humanistic values given to the animals to discern their life perspective. Imagine yourself as rabbit number one. You are born in the wild. You will spend your entire life most likely never interacting with a human being. Every night you run out of your hole and try to desperately find some food that you can eat before one of the plethora of predators in the environment comes to kill and consume you. Night after night, you live in fear and anticipation of the fact that this very well could be the last time you leave your 
your cold, dank dirt hole to scamper around as a hopping dinner plate for any predator in striking distance that you failed to notice. No guarantee of a long life here, higher probability you will become dinner or wander too far from uncommon territory and maybe become roadkill or maybe wander onto a farmer's farm attracted by the young, fresh suits of corn and soy to be eradicated for threatening the supply of the essential and primary food source of the vegan society you have been born into. You will watch all your brothers and sisters and rabbit friends eaten up and torn apart as you make up the primary predatory food staple of most ecosystems the world over. Now, conversely, consider yourself as rabbit number two. You are born in a family farm that raises rabbits for meat. You never experience the fear of being preyed upon, only occasional visits from a large creature to provide food that you don't have to go risk your life searching for. You are fed and content until you are fat and prepared to be slaughtered. You are taken from your enclosure, put on a block, and quickly dispatched with a strike to the neck in the most humane fashion possible. If you are one of the rabbits that happens to be spared for meat and make it to an older age, you can enjoy the extended pain and suffering of debilitating age-related diseases and have your carcass completely wasted and rendered useless. So, which of these animals from this consistent human empathized perspective actually is ultimately and maximal potential well-being and maximally potential minimization of suffering? And with that, I will yield. Thank you very much, Smokey. We will kick it into the open discussion section. So as mentioned, folks, this will be roughly 45 minutes or so, and then we'll get into the shortly after that. So thank you, gentlemen. The floor is all yours. Uh, okay, why not? Let's take these one by one. Uh, you began, Smokey, by saying that animal suffering is present in vegetable production in, in plant-based farming, and therefore how can I justify uh, caring about the lives of pigs more than the animals which are killed in plant-based agriculture. Um, are you not aware that the vast majority of plants and vegetables that we grow are in fact fed to livestock? So yes, uh, plant-based farming produces animal suffering, but we have two choices. We either produce some animal suffering by growing plants and eating the plants, or we grow even more plants because it takes more plants to feed livestock than it takes to feed a human being. We grow even more plants, creating more suffering. We then take those plants, feed them to livestock, kill the extra livestock, which produces even more suffering, and eat the livestock. Would you not agree that eating the plants directly would minimize suffering in the long run? Well, I, I, in a way, yes, but I feel like there might be a hidden uh, premise in there that that's kind of not maybe being addressed, which is that do you, would you believe that there would have to be an increase in the amount of farmland uh, being used and maintained in order to maintain the standard of the amount of food that was being provided by the animals, or do you think it's kind of a wash? Uh, no, I think uh, land use or, or the considerations of land land use leans us firmly in, in the direction of veganism. A study from uh, my own University of Oxford in the Department of Zoology and School of Geography and Environment conducted by Joseph Poor showed that uh, if the world were to convert to veganism, we'd free up about 75% of current agricultural land uh, in use, around 50% of arable land in the United States is dedicated to uh, animal agriculture. We are in fact already growing as well as this uh, enough crops to feed the world's population around about three times over, but we take those crops and we feed them to livestock and we eat the livestock. It takes more crops to feed livestock than it takes to feed human beings, which means that if we're currently growing enough crops to feed livestock, to feed 70 billion livestock uh, animals per year, then we definitely are growing enough crops to feed you know, seven or eight billion people uh, across a lifetime. 
Would, would you not agree? So I, at a certain point, I actually kind of could agree. Um, would you say that then in the path of the ethical maximization of this environment, there would have to be either a, a mass slaughter, a mass culling, or an allowing of a mass dying out of the farm animals that make up this part of the, the, the system? Uh, no, it would be a case of preventing the breeding of them into existence. So, it, well, it depends what you mean by dying out. Of course, we, we're not going to go around and genocide any species. You actually asked okay. the question about whether species extinction is a bad thing, and if it is not, then why human extinction wouldn't be a bad thing. I don't think extinction is intrinsically bad. No, species as a whole, considered as a group, cannot be harmed. What matters is individual experience when we're talking about uh, ethics. If we stop breeding animals into existence and they go extinct, I don't think the extinction is a bad thing in itself. Um, if we were to genocide human beings, that would be a proactive decision that we'd make. It wouldn't be a case of just choosing to stop breeding ourselves into existence. But I believe if we chose to do that, if all human beings on planet Earth decided to just stop breeding, it wouldn't be an intrinsically bad thing. Of course not. Well, um, can you can you uh, appreciate the idea that maybe at a certain level you are assuming um, a, a certain life path of all of these animals almost collectively? Like you know, minimizing them breeding and stuff, you know, there, there's going to be a whole lot of animals that will be born and delivered and make it on ranches and farms or preserves or whatever, um, that won't, you know, necessarily suffer as much or suffer at all, you know, in, in the terms of factory farming, but those creatures will not exist in this paradigm, where you've kind of taken them to levels where, I guess I'm saying there are creatures that will experience suffering, but there's also creatures that will experience, you know, the benefit of the life experience, which they will be deprived because now of this environment where they no longer exist. Does that make sense? Yes. And I'm sure you are familiar with the work of uh, various sanctuaries across the world who are currently um, providing uh, a perfectly amiable life for animals, some who are saved from factory farming uh, without having to kill them at the end. The question I would ask is whether you think the same uh, position, which you would have to agree with to be consistent on this point, would apply to human beings. I could breed a human being into existence with the express purpose of wanting to kill that human being for the sake of satiating my cannibalistic desires. Now, I could argue when I grow that human being to 18 years of age and kill them painlessly, by the way, they don't know it's coming. Uh, I kill them without their knowing, and I, and I, and I do it in the most painless way possible, uh, which is granting the thought experiment too much, by the way, because we don't kill animals in the most painless way possible. But let's say I kill that human being in the most painless way possible. You would, I assume, think I don't have the right to do so. But I could quite easily turn around and say, but listen, if I did not have the intention to kill this person, to cannibalize their flesh, then they would never have lived in the first place. If I knew that I couldn't ethically do this, then I wouldn't have bred them into existence. And surely a life of 18 years, of, you know, living a good life, having a fairly average life uh, is worth you know, having to having to be killed by me when I turn 18. Now, it may be the case that genuinely speaking, yes, it is better to have that life than to not have that life. But that does not it does not follow from that. that You have the moral right to take that person's life. What you have done, and I'm afraid to say you did this with the rabbit example as well, is presented a false dichotomy. You say, would you rather be a rabbit who suffers in the wild or suffers a lot less in domesticated uh, in, on a domesticated farm? Uh, and then dies at the end. Those aren't the only two options. Sure, I would rather be the second rabbit. I've got no problem accepting that. But you know what kind of rabbit I'd rather be is a rabbit who lives in that domesticated farm and doesn't get killed at the end. And if you're worried about people not having an incentive to uh, produce these kinds of farms, then I'll remind you that the farms that are producing uh, the animal products which we're consuming are already being propped up by government subsidies. If we were to redivert that money into uh, into sanctuary 
uh, or, or wildlife preservation, if you're worried about wild animal suffering as well, um, we'd have more than enough money to uh, satiate that that demand. But but before we get sidetracked, because well, we've, we've moved from um, and if I could, could another, I... Could I just touch on the false dichotomy claim for just just real quick, just to answer it? Real Would you mind if just before we just before okay, you no, did, go because, ahead. I, because ahead. we moved on sure. to another point here? Sure. Uh, your first point was that uh, animals die in vegetable production, and therefore there's kind of an inconsistency, or at least an, a kind of unresolved ethical dispute here about why why we should value those animals uh, less than we value pigs and cows. Right. Would you accept that because the majority of vegetables and plants grown are in fact fed to livestock, that that point doesn't stand? Well, it, not particularly because uh, to me in the instance that the, the animals, uh, what you have is a massive number of them. You know, now I can conceive the idea of, let's say this, like I actually probably, I haven't looked at those exact papers you're referencing to say that if we suddenly eliminated, suddenly out of nowhere, eliminated the feeding of livestock, all of this land would be freed up for, you know, the, wouldn't actually even be needed for the cultivation of food you're saying i think could be given back to nature is that kind of what you're what you're saying like that uh, we we use a lot of farmland we could actually use less farmland and then we could give it more to nature and that would be more of a natural environment well we could do all sorts of things with that land um and it's it's not my opinion there it's the opinion of uh, the most comprehensive study ever take ever ever conducted uh, on the relationship between animal agriculture and the environment well, found that 70 percent 75% of land uh, could be no longer needed if we switch to a plant-based agricultural system. Well, but but if the if the ethical argument is following that that is the justification, then isn't there a bit of a consequential demand to kind of say like, well, whatever it's used for won't be an environment of more animal suffering than what it was previously used for. Isn't that something that kind of, I mean, if you're making the argument that ethically, you know, this land is better off this way, then shouldn't you kind of have a, almost a burden of proof to say what it's going to be used for? And if that is a better ethical environment for minimized animal suffering. Yeah, I mean, I don't particularly care what we use the land for. There's no obligation for us to dedicate it to efforts for rewilding. Um, I know a lot of vegans suggest that that would be a good idea. I'm not uh, particularly on board with that because I think the wild animal suffering needs to be taken into account. But for all I care, you can turn it into a car park. The point is that uh, the point about land usage, but also about vegetable production, uh, because I, I can tell you that it is it is simply a fact that the majority of plants grown are used to feed livestock. And so if your original argument, or your first argument, I should say, was that uh, by, by growing these vegetables and deciding to kill these animals was somehow not actually minimizing suffering in, a, in an ethically sensible way, um, does not the, the, the fact that the majority of these plants that are grown are being fed to livestock completely dismiss what you said there? Um. Okay, I, I I think I might possibly be able to concede your point if we if we discern the presupposition inside of it, and I guess that has to do with its policy implementation. Because I I mean I guess in a way it's good to sit and say it would be really nice if the clouds were made of cotton candy, but you know that doesn't tell us how to do that you know type thing. So I'm wondering. In your mind, just from your perspective, and then I'd like to go back to the false dichotomy thing, but in your mind, in your perspective, in terms of a application of policy to manifest what, what you're perceiving as the highest you know, social ethical virtue, 
what what are you kind of proposing as should be done? Are you saying it needs to be argued as a cultural dynamic and people need to change their minds slowly over time? Or is it something that requires some sort of hardline governmental infrastructure change or challenge? Um, I wouldn't advocate for any kind of government uh, or infrastructure change because I think that legitimate government must be based on the consent of the people and therefore you would need to have a critical mass of people who agree with okay. the philosophy in order Beautiful. to legitimately make the government do that. What I would say is that, um, uh, well, no, I, I don't, I don't want to kind of take up too much time if you want to talk about No, that's the, fine. No, in fact, we can carry from that. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you for that. So could we, could we kind of almost discern and think that um, the culture would have to change from, from what's currently been maybe you would agree with this, a prioritization of keeping a cheap availability of meat has conversely been a catalyst to the inferior treatment of animals. Uh, it's, it's, it's partly that, but it's not just that, because even if you know it, it wasn't a drive to produce actually cheap meat, uh, it still remains the fact that the principal driving motive of, of the animal agricultural industry is profit regardless of the cost of the meat in the long run even if we envision a world in which animals are killed much less uh, and are therefore much more expensive it's still going to be driven by profit and wherever profit is involved in the commodification of a living being you can ensure that suffering will exist right well i can agree with that and and i think that's even one of my concerns on some of these you know ethical dilemmas of whether or not this ends up being a unanimous cultural decision because I, I think part of the problem, one of the, the side uh, effects that I could see, and I guess it's two-part, I'll give you both and kind of let you respond to them. Um, the transition from the environment, even assuming the cultural accepted it, you now have all of this livestock that will take some time to, well, I, as I guess, you know, die out type thing. So we are still going to be feeding that livestock for a period of time and also having a demand for now the food to supplant all the stuff that the livestock is now not providing. So could you concede that there would be a perceivable issue of a window of time where policy implementations of how this actually functions on a societal level might be a bit of a challenge? Uh, no, for a few reasons. First okay. being that you you mentioned, the last thing you mentioned, take them in reverse, as you said, that uh, we would have to kind of replace, uh, if, if we're no longer kind of using these animals, we'd need to replace the food that we would get from them with plants. Well, and with, a, with a mild clarification, and not just the food, but I would say also all the things that are animal byproducts that make their way into very, very common plethora of day-to-day -day products. Like there's also would now be a need to find plant-based versions of things to replace those things that we normally have as animal byproducts. Just to clarify well, that, sorry. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be a case of finding them because we already have a plethora of plant-based alternatives to any of the necessities or pleasantries of life. It's just a case of implementing them. The question that you ask is whether this will happen overnight uh, or separately, whether I'd want this to happen overnight. Um, realistically, it's not going to. I recognize that by convincing people, morally speaking, to uh, stop paying for the uh, breeding and torture and confinement of animals, um, what will happen is these animals will be bred into existence less and less as the economic demand depletes. And so we don't have to worry about what's going to happen to the animals because the animals are still going to be eaten. It's just that there's going to be less brought into existence. But suppose I grant you a hypothetical situation in which everybody goes vegan overnight. What do we do with the animals? Um, well, the, the answer is probably something along the lines of euthanization. I think that would have to be the case. Um, now, you may say 
that doesn't sound very vegan to be in favor of killing animals. But here's the point. These animals are bred to die, right? The moment that they're, brought, that they're bred into existence, an ethical atrocity has already been committed and that these animals have been condemned to a terrible fate. And the, and the question that we would have is whether we kill these animals to prevent future generations from continuing suffering in the same way, or we allow them to continue multiplying and suffering in the same way. And I think it's a perfectly vegan, bearing in mind that veganism is about the minimization of suffering in the long run, um, to euthanize these animals. But in re reality, uh, we wouldn't have to have that very difficult and nuanced ethical discussion because that's not how it's going to work. What's going to happen is we're going to stop breeding these animals into existence. So we don't have to worry uh, about about that at all. It, it doesn't even come up in the conversation. I find it very strange how people will simultaneously argue, on the one hand, uh, about species extinction. They'll say that these animals are going to go extinct if we don't keep breeding them into existence. But on the other hand, they say that if we stop eating them, they're going to overrun us and there are going to be too many and we won't know what to do with them. It's like we need to make our mind up here. Which is it going to be? Well, and if I may, just to touch on that, because that's, that, that's a beautiful point, you know, th there is an example I brought up just in periphery in my opening, which is the example of the, um, the deer in the Midwest, you know, which what's happened is, of course, the humans living there have replaced, you know, the primary predators in the ecosystem as the humans moved in and settled, you know, things like wolves and, uh, and cougars and bobcats, these things are a danger to, you know, the cultivation of livestock like sheep and cows and stuff like that so they would kill off a lot of the primary predators so now there's a lack of predators to prey upon the sheep the the, the white-tailed deer i believe it is so if humans were suddenly removed from the equation of hunting them because hunting them is ethically wrong well then they would die out but i don't generally see vegans you know thinking that the life experience of a deer is so necessarily painful or bad that it should be wiped out of existence and rendered extinct you know that life experience of the deer opposed to also being hunted whether it's being hunted by what was its primary predator wolves or you know bobcats it's now had a primary predator replace it inside the ecosystem so where in that particular dynamic does the kind of moral atrocity follow I want to make sure I completely understand the exact question you're asking, because you've kind of spoken a little bit about uh, ecosystems and deers, but I'm not sure exactly what the question is. That well, you're well, like I, I would say that the ultimate, you know, vegan ethical framework is kind of it's not ever good to kill animals unless it's justifiable. Right. Like, I mean, you know, you have a suffering animal that's in need of euthanasia. It's not considered morally virtuous to allow it to continue to suffer. Like, like kind of like your two two pig uh, was it two legged pig thing in the gas chamber? Like, well, if it was a pig and it had two legs, is it suffering? Maybe it needs to be in the gas chamber, not to make it morbid. But I'm saying, you know, I think that at a certain level, we almost have that ethical pull of realizing an animal in suffering isn't it, allowing that to continue isn't virtuous. It's not good. You know, I think any of us can be turned into a, a quick cold blooded murderer if we happen to accidentally run over an animal. You know what I'm saying? Like, so like if I, we run over an animal and the animal's laying there suffering, I don't think we're the type of like, oh, I can't handle this. I'm emotionally downtrodden. I have to leave. Like you almost feel that ethical pull. Like, well, you're either going to help it or put it out of its misery because that is a better ethical position. Right. Uh, okay. 
Um, so I guess I'm drawing from that to the perspective of where we are drawing the line in the argument of, you know, the justification of the animal suffering. I'm sorry, I led that in a really roundabout circle. Well, I mean, there are a few there are a few things to say here. Firstly, is that, you know, this is obviously a different topic from the food consumption that we've been uh, kind of talking about. And there are right. apologies. Yeah, to, but no, that's that's fine. These these this is what happens when you do these things in a conversational style. I, I would kind of that there's a lot of uh a lot of things that need to be considered when it comes to uh, things like funding especially like deer population um bearing in mind that like uh, the problem is in many ways or in, in pretty much always human caused when uh predators hunt prey in the wild they tend to prey on the weakest that's kind of how it happens natural selection works such that like uh, the weaker die out the stronger uh, survive and so as the deer population evolves so does the prey but hunters tend to go for the strongest they tend to go for the ones with the big antlers with the with the bulky frame and all of this kind of stuff so we're disrupting the ecosystem by uh, in not a particularly natural way by going in and doing so there's also not many people know this 4,000 or thereabouts deer farms in the united states which are breeding deer into existence many of whom are specifically used for hunting right it's it's not like hunters are going into the wild for the sake of the ecosystem and because they care about the environment, I've never seen a hunter post a photo on his Facebook profile outside a recycling bin. You know, it's not about ecosystem prevention. If it were, then there wouldn't be these deer farms that are breeding deers into existence for the sake of wanting to kill them, as well as uh, clear-cutting a practice uh, in which state wildlife management uh, agencies are cutting down vast expanses of forestry to prevent to 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 procure the kind of uh, edge habitats which are favored by deer in order that hunters can then go and hunt them you, you'll probably be familiar with the yellowstone situation in which uh hunting is now banned because of the absolute catastrophe that it had on the ecosystem uh in that hunters were killing the wolves leading to an overpopulation uh, overpopulation of deer um and wolves had to then be reintroduced just to balance out the ecosystem in other words i don't think we have a very good history of going into nature as hunters, killing animals by shooting them in the lung, taking them out of that system, right? Which, by the way, um, changes the metabolic cycle of the entire uh, process of an animal dying and being eaten, not just by the predator who killed it, but also uh, other animals who are scavenging um, off off the remains. Um, we completely disrupt this ecosystem by killing that animal and taking it out of nature. Um, I don't think that it's a very strong argument to say that by hunting these animals, we're somehow prioritizing uh, environmentalism or ecosystem uh, balancing, especially due to the development of things like chronic wasting disease, which is much like mad cow disease, um, but affects uh, deer and elk and moose and is ravaging the wild deer population, largely due to the fact that these deer are being uh, bred in farms in order that hunters can go and uh, kill them for sport. So, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure I'm entirely sold on this line of argumentation. Well, I guess I'm not particularly arguing for the absolutist versions of, of that implementation. And yes, I, I could agree with you that there have been specific, uh, you know, um, micro environments set up for the prize hunting of animals. And I think that that might be a slightly different ethical conclusion. I understand where you're coming from. And I guess I, I almost could concede it a little bit, if almost you could concede it a little bit on my side, that there is still kind of a little bit of a philosophical stretch in terms of both of our considerations as to how implementation of certain policies will actually affect the wildlife. And just in saying this, like when when a shopping center is going to be put up, or a parking lot, or a farm, or whatever it is, generally, at least here in America, 
Um, I don't know how it is on your, your side of the pond, but generally you have to go in search of and acquire something like an environmental impact report. So when you hire a team of professionals that goes in and sees, well, if you put this here, is anything going to be pushed to the brink of extinction or endangered, or are you going to be, you know, causing any type of major, you know, massive bad ecological impact now, and you see the detriment of countries that don't abide by this, look at what Dubai has done to their coastland with their, you know, manifestation of those crazy, stupid palm trees out in the ocean. And they basically just stagnated and ruined a whole chunk of coastline because of a lack of recognition of the implementation of some of their policies and plans. And I just wondering, can you concede or, or possibly see from a vegan framework that there could be instances there could be instances that could manifest where just by the implementation of the vegan lifestyle at large some extra animal suffering could occur um whether indirectly or directly of course there are some levels of uncertainty but let's uh focus on what we do have certainty of for instance a lot of people may not be aware there's a subsection of the u.s department of agriculture called the wildlife services who uh, regularly place M44s, which are a type of cyanide bomb, across rural America in order to uh, kill wild animals to protect, you guessed it, animal agriculture, uh, farmers and ranchers. The presence of animal agriculture is bad not just for the animals that are on those farms, but to the wild animals who are being uh, killed for their protection as well. We can be certain about these things. Of course, large-scale ecological change is something that's largely unpredictable and therefore we should we should uh, we shouldn't hasten to make generalizations about having any kind of knowledge about um what particular actions will what their effects will be on the the ecosystem but what we do know is that animal agriculture as it currently stands is decimating the ecosystem to the extent that taxpayers in the united states are now paying the government to place cyanide bombs across rural america i think it's clear that as it stands the problem is one that needs to be resolved and the, the simple well, answer to resolving that problem at the moment, as that stands, is to stop funding the animal agriculture that's responsible for its existence. Well, I feel like there's, there's some sort of kind of hidden presupposition there that that wouldn't be happening or wouldn't be implemented for a massive amount of farmland. And just to share, I did grow up on a farm. And one thing well, I could... Sure, go ahead. So I just I just wanted to address that substitution off the bat. I mean, I, I just said that the, the reason why these cyanide bombs are being placed across rural America is to protect animals in the animal agricultural industry. So if the animals right. were in that animal agricultural industry, then yes, that wouldn't be happening. Right. Well, no, but I'm saying it does happen and would happen, just not necessarily that exact way, but it would happen with farmland. And the issue is that whenever you farm anything, there's always generally, at least certainly as I've found, something that in the environment or the ecosystem that's going to want to prey on whatever you're, you're farming. If you have small ground crops, it's generally rabbits or ground squirrels or gophers. If it's, you know, orchard crops like apples and, and oranges, you're dealing with birds or, you know, ravens or something like that. And in many instances, farmers not able to create a synergy with whatever is inside this ecosystem has to overcome it and kill it. 
or else the crops aren't tenable. What happens, and if you don't do that, you don't kill it, but you continue to, to cultivate the crops, the pests um, overpopulate because you're not keeping them in check. Um, and then the, the land basically becomes untenable because the pests are so plentiful, the farmers pull out of the land and don't use it. And then all the animals slowly die off and suffer and starve. So, okay, so you would agree then that the best thing we can do is to minimize uh, the extent to well, which this was my point. This was farms. this was my key point. Is that I mean, do we really know that one acre of farmland of ranch land is ultimately less animal suffering than one acre of farmland or one acre of wild land? Like, do have we necessarily crunched the numbers to know that this environment, other than being used for the cultivation of livestock, is absolutely or at least plausibly because uh, because I mean, if you have one acre of, of land that a, that a cow can graze in and say we're being generous and we want nice, happy cows and we're going to give them a whole acre each each cow, you know, how much of that is used, you know, for, for that one suffering cow, you know, which is now just around that one suffering cow that would be used for millions of suffering insects and mice and gophers and rodents and stuff like that. I guess like like where do we draw the line of this one suffering cow is prioritized over the suffering of hundreds of millions? of other potentially smaller but sentient creatures. I guess that's where I'm going. Because as I say, if we continue to uh, produce farm animals and agri animal agriculture as it stands, we require both the production of the crops at a larger scale than we'd need to feed the human population um, and the killing of the animals. Well, well no, but, but what, we, I'm, what I'm saying to, to, to part of that, and I'm sorry, I think it might have been missed, is that even is if the, you get rid of that land... Yeah, even in the wildland, there's still animal suffering, just not necessarily ones instigated or, or manifested by humans or done in periphery, because whatever's in that land wanders out and goes into human territory and suffers and dies anyway. That's what I was kind so, of... But I'm, I'm not advocating for a system of rewilding by which we turn that land back into a, a, a cesspool of animal suffering. Um, I'm just arguing that we don't use the land for... Uh, agricultural production if we don't need to, if it's going to cause excess animal suffering. And I guess that was kind of my... I, the, studies, the, studies, the, the studies have my back here, I'm afraid to say. I mean, like, I, I would direct you, for instance, um, talking about kind of like um, more organic styles of, of uh, animal production, such as a cow kind of grazing in a field. I'd direct you to a recent study, very recent, December 2020, it came out, so just last month, um, in the journal Nature, co-authored by three scientists, who conclusively showed that the environmental damage caused by organic farming is as bad or worse than the environmental impact of traditional agricultural methods. And we haven't even discussed here the absolutely catastrophic effect that animal agriculture is having on the environment. I mean, we can talk directly about how much, uh, you know, literally breeding and killing an animal is harming that animal. But the first victims of environmental crisis of the environmental crisis are going to be non-human animals and the fact that they're also our exploitation of them is also its cause is something of a, of a vicious circle of inhumanity that's, that's that's difficult to describe how insidious it is that we exploit these animals to such an extent that it's destroying the environment and the first victims of that environmental crisis are going to be non-human animals but not just that but also humans too you mentioned um poorer areas in the world uh, potentially not being able to adopt a vegan diet um and I would rebut that in a multitude of ways, firstly, by saying that veganism is defined as a minimization to the highest extent practicable of all forms of animal suffering. If you need to eat animal products to survive because of where you are in the world, 
then you can still eat animal products, minimize the amount that you eat to the highest extent practicable, and still call yourself someone who agrees with well, the vegan philosophy, but also the environmental damage of the animal agricultural industry uh, that we are propelling into the into the atmosphere um, by consuming these products is going to directly affect people, especially living uh, in poverty, uh, to the extent that we have an overdetermination of reasons to stop funding this. Well, but um, forgive me, but doesn't that kind of seemingly undermine your core moral philosophy? Because I mean, if you're if you're making the statement that it's kind of this objective moral stance that if you're a human and you're killing an animal, you know, it's like, well, would you think it's okay to kill a human in that particular instance? It's kind of the name the trait type thing of giving that equivocation of animal value and human value. Um, and, and I can see where you're going with that. But in that instance, it almost seems like you're saying, well, if you can't, you know, manifest any other possibility, it's fine for you to be a cold-blooded, horrible murderer that I judge as objectively morally wrong. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it almost seems to undermine the level of, I, I guess, uh, potency that you're giving to the moral argument to say that, you know, it's not really objective. It has certain uh, environmental factors that make it morally permissible. And maybe well, the, you could explore that for me. Yeah, the, the operative word there is almost, almost undermined. I'm afraid it uh, doesn't for a variety of reasons. Firstly, if even if you're proposing some kind of objective theory of ethics, taking practical considerations into account to decide how it should actually be applied to uh, some, somebody's life uh, in no way undermines the objectivity of that moral case. You know, if we, if we agreed that it was objectively morally uh, wrong to kill an innocent person, um, we might want to at least readdress that problem when it comes to four people starving on a desert island um, who will only survive the, the amount of time it'll take to get rescued if one of them gets killed. We may still agree that it's a wrong thing to do, but we can recognize that it would at least need a reevaluation based on practical considerations. That doesn't undermine the objectivity of the moral principle upon which we're basing it. Well, let me let me try to put it a slightly different way then. Let, let's let's um, and, and forgive me for you know it being a little bit sloppy here, but like say from from your perspective of the moral positioning that you're presenting, and certainly through the, through the name the trait argument, if you had a forgive me, a retard and a chicken in a room. And it was going to come down to a decision to eat one or the other for survival. Then is it essentially fine to say, well, it doesn't really matter which one you choose because each is morally atrocious equally? Um, I, I think that like uh, that word kind of having lost all of its medical significance i'm not entirely oh sorry okay exactly uh, let's say okay sorry. Let's, let's say let's say someone that we have almost considered as as near vegetative state or or capable of the level of rational reasoning that you'd attribute to maybe a smart parrot you know that type of thing uh you know and then you have a chicken um, and is it is it then, I guess, to say it's just morally equivalent, it's a wash as to whether which one you would kill in order to eat to survive? No, um, the, the name of the trait argument that I presented um, was specifically in the context of well, the, the reason I give a specific example, such as a human being in a gas chamber is because you need to take the example into account. Um, there are morally relevant differences that can determine whether or not uh, one species is worth more than another, or indeed if one person you determine is, is worth more than another. The question is, are they worth uh, more to the extent that we have the right to kill them? Now, now the, the point I would raise here is to say that 
in the situation we're in, whereby we don't need to kill these animals to survive, we can say that a pig has less moral worth than a human being because of a multitude of, of morally relevant factors. But because we're not in a situation where one of them has to be killed, none of those differences are morally relevant when it comes to the justification for forcing one to a, into a gas chamber. But if you're in a situation of necessity, then those moral considerations will come into play. In other words, you know, in the same way that you might determine on a desert island that one person is more deserving of life than another, if you had to kill one of them, not even on a desert island, because some people think you shouldn't kill either, but if you were forced, um, you know, on, on pain of, of some kind of horrible moral atrocity to choose to kill one person or another, suppose one is like a, an elderly person who's going to die next week anyway, and the other is a, is a young promising mathematician who is, is working towards a cure for cancer, you might decide that when push comes to shove, you have to value the extrinsic uh, worth of the second person uh, you have to take that into account because although the intrinsic worth might be the same, you might have extrinsic factors to say that that person's worth more than the other. But the moment we leave that situation, the moment we place ourselves in the real world, the, the actual amount of difference by which one is morally worth more than the other may be this much or this much or this much. But if this is the scale we're talking about, if humans are here and pigs are here and maybe, you know, um, rats are here or whatever, the, the where they would have to be in order to justify what we're doing to them in the real world would be, well, on this scale, my hand would be in North America across, across the ocean. Okay. Um, I had something I was going to lead into. Sorry. Um, it lost me. Let's skip a thought. Um, the, the, could you, could you almost agree to this following statement? Um, at some instances, or maybe, maybe objectively, maybe for the sake of this argument, the only difference in trait between the animal and the human is whatever subjective value we have placed on them. Um, I don't think so. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I understand your well, question. Well, well because, okay, well, if you ultimately decide like in the real world, that subjectively the animal has this level of equivalent value, yet in the hypothetical world, it's different. You know, does that not kind of lead to an idea that based upon environmental circumstances, the value you attribute could change and therefore is by matter of nature subjective. And therefore the only trait that really separates these things in our mind, whether the vegan or the meat eater, is just whatever subjective value we have attributed to them, and that is the only difference in the trait. Is that feasible? From uh, perspective? I, I wouldn't say so because I'm, I'm working on a system of uh, minimization of suffering here, which is to say, and, and there again, we, we haven't opened up the metaethical discussion of why that should be valued. That's probably too difficult or too long, at least, a conversation to have uh, under this format. But what I would say is that once once we agree that that is an admirable goal, and there could be different reasons for thinking so, somebody might be, you know, Sam Harris might say that it's just a priori true that suffering is bad. I would disagree. But for whatever re reason we arrive at that point, if we say that suffering is bad, then we can now talk objectively about what's actually going to minimize suffering. So if we know, for instance, that a human being is capable of uh, planning for the future and a level of sociability and uh, social connection that would cause considerably more suffering uh, for himself and for the rest of his society if he were killed than it would do a pig, then we can say that perhaps that morally relevant consideration grants the human being more moral worth than the pig does. But it doesn't grant them so much more that they can do as they please to the pig. Interesting. 
Interesting. Uh, this has really been incredibly uh, pre pleasurable, and I very much appreciate your competence as a debater, Alex. This has been a, a, a wonderful time. I was hoping to kind of carry into a slightly different metaphysical level, if you don't mind. And uh, James, I don't know how much time we have here. Um, we only have about on the exact timer about two minutes okay this will i'll try yeah then this should be pretty quick um alex i just wanted to, to pick your brain on this one um and i don't know maybe you have an idea on terms of uh any specific data you've looked at that leads us to believe that the type of suffering that many species of fish experiences you know equivalent levels of suffering that other animals um experience and therefore if that has any catalyst effect in consideration of them being ample prey for society and number two too, uh, just to kind of lead off of that, is is your thoughts of a vegan lifestyle where veganism, the abstinence of animal products, is the ultimate goal and desire and, and high virtue? Um, what in the instance where perhaps animal products are grown or lab manufactured without any potential of um, animal suffering, actual, you know, sentient suffering at all in order to produce it, would you be okay with that type of product being part of society? Sure, I'll, I'll happily answer these questions. And James, I know I said um, about time constraints, but I'm happy to just to just basically go for as long as this takes, because I also want to ask you one more question in return. Oh, beautiful, um, sure. Most of them have yeah. been directed to me so far. Um, on the first point about fish, um, our best evidence suggests that fish are capable of feeling pain. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to quantify, of course, and so it's difficult to talk about whether they kind of feel more or less pain than certain other animals. What we do know is that they feel enough pain that our unnecessary destruction of them uh, is unjustified. And it's not just the fish uh, that we kill for food, but also collateral damage. The methods of fishing that are used to produce the obscene numbers, and it's, it's genuinely unthinkable, the level of, of, of uh, fish that are being killed, even in comparison to uh, factory-farmed land-based animals. Um, it's not just a consideration of the fish that are being killed, but also the fact that, you know, when they scrape the seabed to try and find the fish that they're after uh, and the sea life that they're after, there are untold levels of collateral damage, um, which is a complete uh, waste of life, but also a destruction to the ecosystem. The environmental damage of uh, fishing should be bad enough to convince people to go vegan on that front, even if the animal suffering argument doesn't do it for them. Fully one half of the 79,000 tons of ocean plastic in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch are fishing nets. Fishing nets, 50%, right? Fishing is destroying the ocean, not just in terms of the, the suffering of the fish, but in terms of the environmental impact as well. Um, that would answer, that, that, would, that would be how I would respond to your first question on the second point about lab-grown meat. Veganism, veganism is about the minimization of animal suffering. So if no animals suffer, uh, in the production of some kind of product, then yeah, you can do as you please to it. I, I could, I couldn't really care less um, what you decide to eat, and, and most people don't. A lot of people think that vegans care about what people eat. I mean, I really don't. Every time somebody posts an Instagram photo of their latest dish, I just couldn't care less. What we care about is whether there was any suffering uh, necessitated by getting it onto your plate. Now, the one thing I would say, however, is that although I think that lab-grown meat is, is fine and a, an exciting prospect and something we should be looking forward to, it should not be seen as a reason to not go vegan yet. For someone who says, well, look, I, I understand all the arguments you're making, but I'm not going to go vegan until, uh, until lab-grown meat gives me the exact same experience. Um, I don't think people who say this understand how sinister they 
sound. Uh, it's a means of saying, listen, I know that animals are being tortured, tortured. They're being forced into gas chambers. They're being separated from their children. They're being crushed in bags to suffocate or ground up alive. But, you know, the taste just doesn't quite do it for me. And it's maybe 80% there, the vegan alternative, 90% there, but it doesn't quite do it for me. It's, it's insidious. If all vegan food tasted absolutely disgusting, we'd still have an obligation to eat it because taste pleasure is never a consideration when it comes to the infliction of torture upon an innocent creature. And so even if it tasted horrible, we'd still have an obligation to eat it. So aren't we lucky that we live in a world where it doesn't taste horrible? And yes, lab-grown meat will be another wonderful tasty alternative, but for somebody who's waiting for that to arrive, I pity the conversation they'll have to have with their grandchildren when they when they say, I know that you lived in a time where you could have perfectly healthily abstained from this animal cruelty and you chose not to. Why? Because the food just wasn't quite nice enough. It's like, I, forgive me for not taking these people ethically seriously. Um, but look, I, I want an opportunity to ask you one question. The, the thing is, it kind of it kind of opens the door into a whole new uh, subject of discussion. But I would at least ask you to, it, it, considering the fact that um, things like soy production destroying the environment, um, and around seventy five percent of the soy that we grow is fed to livestock. So it's not just red meat that's bad for the environment, but fifty percent of the soy that we grow for livestock is fed to to chickens. So white meat as well. Um, and the soy that's grown for human consumption is uh, only about 6% of the soy that's grown is actually consumed by humans. And that soy is grown in other areas of the world, like North America and Europe. The stuff that's destroying the rainforest is grown for animal consumption. Um, also, the UK, I don't know what it's like for the US, but the UK imports 1.83 million tons of soy per year for livestock, which destroys 900,000 hectares of land in the process. And every single one of those hectares uh, emits 3.67 tons of carbon dioxide into the environment. Um, the fact that 63% of the world's arable land is being used for livestock, um, despite the fact that animal products only provide about 18% of our caloric intake worldwide, the fact that 20 times more water is required to produce one pound of beef than one pound of starchy root vegetables, the fact that 2,000 gallons of water is needed for one pound of beef and 1,000 gallons for a pound of milk, the fact that worldwide 14 to 80% of all greenhouse emissions are due to livestock production, and that methane, which is a particular problem of the animal agricultural industry, is 34 times worse a greenhouse gas uh, than CO2 on the scale of a century, and on the scale of two decades, 86 times more. And also the ocean uh, destruction that I mentioned a moment ago. Would you agree that animal agriculture is decimating the environment, and that that should provide us with at least some incentive to abstain from funding it well this mild problem i have with that is i think it could very very easily be said that just human presence is destroying the environment even in instances where humans have decided to create um uh, preserves and places that are supposed to be you know basically bastions of a minimization of animal suffering there's still almost an intrinsic requirement of occasional human interference to try and mitigate what could be cataclysmic cataclysmic ecosystem events that are even caused by peripheral causes of human civilization. So it, it almost, to me, at a certain level, feels like we might be splitting hairs on some of it. Now, here's what I'll 
again, I haven't looked at a lot of the references that you're specifically citing for the decrease in, in land production for the cultivation of the animals, but I'll go ahead and concede it for you. The issue that I have, again, is just, I guess, what, what follows is this automatic assumption that whatever that land is ultimately used for after being from farm production or animal agriculture is definitively and essentially with confidence believed to going to be supplanted by an environment of less animal suffering. And so I guess this is where, uh, and I don't think I haven't seen anything that really has done any level of work to say definitively one side or the other, because of what I had said earlier, there are lots of, I think, secondary and third potential ramifications that aren't necessarily considered. And yeah, like I, you look at a problem, like you bring up of the nets in the ocean, that's, that's atrocious and that's a problem. It's the same thing with the factory farms. You know, I, I personally don't like the fact that the culture and the environment has prioritized cheap production of meat, which I believe personally is the catalyst to the mistreatment of animals. What was, and I think you would argue, or maybe even I would hope at least agree, the humans who were farmers 200 years ago, who were just rave, raising animals for their own sustenance and benefit, weren't doing anything ethically wrong by your standards. But once they um, progressed no, they to, a, to a level where they could do something different, then all of a sudden the moral obligation existed. Uh, yeah, and we're in that situation right now. I would ask you, because uh, you, you speak uh, quite movingly about the uh, terrible conditions in which animals are kept and seem to imply that you wish it would come to an end. I would just ask you, are you somebody who pays for these products? Um, I, yes, I do. Yes. And even an extent for as much as I could even try to say, well, I could mitigate the purchase of pigs and, and beef, um, which, and by the way, let me tell you this, if I, if I knew there was a local family farm that I could support, that produced slightly more expensive, but animals that were cared for and open free range and had a better quality of life, I would happily and gladly and quickly support that manufacturer and hope that doing so would starve out a large, cruel factory farm type of environment. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. But until one arises, do you not think you have an obligation to abstain from an industry which you self-admittedly uh, say is, is a moral abomination? Well, um, in the sense that I don't believe there's another optimal option, you know, in terms of like, say, for instance, even just to the level of pets, let me take it to that. Um, pets, I, I know there is a concern of having, you know, particularly cats and dogs, which are heavily, you know, protein written. In fact, I, I specifically go to look for food that is as natural and free of byproducts for my cats at all. That's one of those things to me that for the sake of wanting the higher quality of life for my cats who are intimately collect connected to me, I have attributed a higher value of them than, you know, the general pig byproduct that produced their, their food. So, okay, but, but look, this is, this is an irrelevancy. My, my question is, is a fairly simple one. Uh, disregarding uh, things like pets, if you think that the factory farming animal agricultural industry as it exists right now is uh, morally wrong, right. uh, and yet you pay for it to continue, would you not see that as a moral inconsistency on your part? 
No, because I don't see that the contrary solution of the position right now is necessarily objectively morally virtuous. I, I think it has arguments that it presents to... Oh, okay, so itself. hold on, sorry. You, you're saying simultaneously that by by funding animal agriculture, we're doing something wrong, but somehow it's not the case that by not funding that industry, we're well, what I'm saying is that we're assuming that whatever we did that wasn't animal agriculture on that land wouldn't be worse. We're, we're making a massive assumption. And I mean, even if you look at it, look at it through this lens just real quickly, because this is kind of how I'm looking at it, too. Just because we don't see or cause the animal suffering doesn't mean it's there. It's not there. So if you have a uh, piece of wild land that's not touched by humans there's still animals suffering there. I mean, yeah, as and, and you, you have the choice when you go into a supermarket to either pay for a product which necessitated that kind of animal suffering to grow a lot of crops to then feed an animal, which then suffered, which was then killed for you to eat, or you have the option to buy the crops directly. And it should be blindingly obvious well, that the latter option is the ethical obligatory thing to do. We do well, have to jump into the Q&A pretty quick here because we have a lot of questions. So if you guys are ready for it, we do I'll have... concede it. I'm a moral monster. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, right, so... No, I, I not, to, not to be flippant at it or something. And I hope you understand, Alex, I have a strong appreciation for where your positioning is coming from and the amount of knowledge that you have on it. Um, I, I do just wonder in a level of, uh, you know, and this partially probably does have to do with my personal Smokey, world. this has to be extremely Sorry. concise because we have a ton quick. of it, questions. So like 20 seconds. Okay. Um, I, I just wonder about certain secondary and third dynamics that aren't necessarily always crunched in terms of these arguments. But I know with that, I'll yield. That's, that's fine. Um, at the end of the day, we either pay for our animals to be tortured or we don't. And when history looks back upon you, as Peter Singer says in Animal Liberation, you'll either be counted among the oppressors or the liberators. And it's time for us all to make that choice. Um, yeah, looking forward to Q&A. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And as I mentioned, folks, our guests are linked in the description so you can hear plenty more or read plenty more where that comes from. And so thanks so much for your super sticker, Jeremy Martin. Appreciate the support. Cider and Port says, my after show, which is linked in the description, will, uh, says both debaters are more than welcome to attend, although uh, I don't, they said they don't know if Smokey will. And they said Alex and Smokey would be thrilled if you both came by to visit us open room, etc. And so, yeah, we will link any after shows, no matter what side of the position you were on, folks. So we're happy to do that, though we prefer you get those links to us prior to the debate, as Cider and Port did. And we appreciate that. Logical, plausible, I, probable. I might stop in, Rib. Says for Cosmic Skeptic, if an EMP takes out modern society or logistics, will you still be a vegan or will you starve yourself to death? Uh... It's difficult to even begin addressing the, the, the fallacious nature of that question. Um, if I'm in a position whereby I can abstain from harming animals, then I will do so. That's that's the answer to your question. Um, if I'm living in a situation of necessity, whereby the only way to stay alive and be healthy is to cause some harm to an animal, I'll cause the least possible harm that I can to that animal in order to continue surviving. Uh, the vegan definition, I'll remind you, is a minimization, not an elimination, but a minimization of animal suffering to the highest extent practicable, um, which means that, yes, I would still be a vegan in any situation, including a situation in which the only option I had to stay alive was to kill a pig. I'd kill that pig and still be a vegan because I'd still be minimizing suffering to the highest extent that I can. 
Gotcha. Thanks so much. ASMR Drums says, Cosmic Skeptic, do you have any pets that you feed animal products to? Is it immoral to do so? Uh, it's an interesting question that gets raised a lot. Um, we do have a, a cat in the house, although I'm not in charge of feeding that cat, although I'm sure that, it, uh, that, that our cat is fed animal products. Um, the... Of course, the vegan argument relies on the fact that we're not obligate carnivores. A lot of people say that we need to eat meat. The vegan response to that is to say, no, we don't. We can be perfectly healthy on a plant-based diet, which is absolutely true. Um, the corollary of that, however, is that if we were obligate carnivores, then we would be morally justified in eating animal products. And since cats are obligate carnivores, I think that they are justified in, in eating these products. And potentially the procurement of these products in the form of pet food um, might be better than allowing them to go and hunt in the wild. We'd still have a problem with the fact that the conditions in which these animals are being used to be turned into pet food are fairly uh, horrific, but it would be a bit of a mockery for us to try and affect change in that area whilst we're still torturing animals for consumption ourselves. In other words, in order to ethicize the production of uh, cat food, um, I think we first have to ethicize the production of our own food. Uh, we may find that the, the suffering... Uh, present in something like cat food is actually contingent. It's not necessary. We could get rid of it somehow, but we're not going to be able to even open up that discussion before we agree that, uh, that, that harming animals for our own food uh, is is wrong. Gotcha. And thank you. Isaiah4222 says, Flat Earth 101 website or down in the rabbit hole on YouTube. Appreciate that plug. Sunflower, thanks for your super chat, said, For Cosmic Skeptic, beyond the vegan diet, how do you determine how much farther one should go in terms of lifestyle compromises that reduce animal harm or death? Um, well, I mean, I, I think that as long as you're consciously, uh, to, the, to the same extent that you would go about trying not to harm other human beings, like if you are conscious of a situation, situation that you're in in which you can uh prevent yourself from being responsible for animal suffering i think you should take it of course you're going to step on insects when you exit the house you're going to uh potentially hit something with your car when you drive down the road but bear in mind as long as we're being consistent here we haven't got a we haven't got a problem my, my problem is with people's ethical inconsistency for example we accept the fact that if we allow people to drive on roads human beings are going to die car crashes are so common that they don't even make the news now, it would be the case that if we banned everyone from driving, less human beings would die. Um, but we recognize that it's it's worth it in some respect. That's kind of the, the debate that's being had in terms of what speed limit should be allowed or whatever. But, but basically, the, the, the if, if we say something like, well, how far are you going to take this? Because, you know, should you never drive a car because you might hit an animal? The exact same question can be asked to driving a car and the risk that it poses to hitting another human being. As long as we're being consistent in our application uh, of our moral framework to non-human animals, and human animals, uh, I think that's the best you can do. Gotcha, thanks. And Cider and Port says, having debated Smokey three times, I never thought I'd say this. I'm only, I'm not only more rooting for Smokey, but I also think he's doing a good job. Once again, both debaters, welcome to my after show. Well, glad that you're uh, warming up to Smokey. Kent Hovind's CPA, though, doubt it his, his real CPA, but says, Smokey, are you still opposed to Red Wings? I don't know what that is. Is that an inside joke? Next, thanks for your question. Isaiah4022 says, Jesus is a motionless flat earther and the Bible's a flat earth book. Gotcha. Well, thank you for that. It's uh, <laughs> out of nowhere. Daver, thanks for your question. Said, Cosmic, would you eat the same food the cattle are fed? Uh, well, no, not the exact same food, but the point is about uh, land use and the kind of uh, that, that we could be using it for, for all kinds of crop production. Um, 
like no i wouldn't have the same diet as a cow but that's not what was in question gotcha thank you for that and alex gordon sorry guys i have to read these they make me question for both debaters isn't james the handsomest boy in the entire school okay what is that jin thank Agreed. you for your question yeah, uh, or, i can sorry. tell how much you hated reading that i can tell how much <laughs> <laughs> uh jerry Beanlick uh says cs Pig challenge, what if each difference contributes to the decision by a tiny amount, eventually, with enough differences, you reach a threshold and allow for the kill? The, In other words, the scale isn't discrete, but is considered continuous in terms of when it is or isn't allowed to kill something. Then the challenge turns from name the trait into name the traits. Give me the collection of traits by which if I removed them from a human being or gave them to a human being, whichever way you, 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 you frame it, um, you'd be okay with me forcing them into a gas chamber. I don't think you'll find it. Um, bear in mind that, again, there are a great many cumulative considerations that will grant one species more moral worth than another. The question that we need to face is not just what grants one species more moral worth than another, but what grants that species so much more of moral worth that they can do literally anything they please with the other, uh, up to and including um, uh, gassing to death with carbon dioxide in, in, in gas chambers. You bet. And thank you. Atu Despor, appreciate your questions. That great debate, guys. Ola from A Brazilian Admirer. Thank you. They said at, from Atu Despor channel. Appreciate your support. And then Daver says, how does a slaughterhouse profit on the very act of torturing animals? Sorry, could you repeat that? They asked, how does a slaughterhouse profit on the very act of torturing animals? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the kind of point of the question. Um, it's not just about a slaughterhouse. It's about the conditions in which the animal was kept before it was slaughtered. Um, but they profit from certainly harming animals by the fact that their entire business model is based upon the most cost-efficient manner of producing animal products uh, that they can find. And the most cost-efficient manner never accords with the most ethically efficient manner. You got it. Thank you very much. So maybe, maybe I've misunderstood the point of the question. I wasn't certain either, so we're in the same boat. And Honest Abe, thank you for your question. Said, Dear Alex, we are an aspiring star of Oh, they went to say, you are an aspiring star of YouTube atheism. Now you have become a spokesperson for veganism. How do you personally cope with publicly holding not one, but two highly polarizing positions? Uh, by knowing what I'm talking about and trying to win any time I have a debate on the topics. Um, it, it's quite easy when it comes to something like veganism, because this is such a blindingly ethically obvious position, as far as I can see, that... Um, I don't lose any sleep over it. You know, I don't have to particularly prepare for these kinds of things because uh, as long as you know the facts, the argumentation follows almost as a corollary. It's, it's one of the easiest arguments to make in the world. The fact that it's polarizing, the fact that people get upset about it could, could you know, I, I, I couldn't care less. It takes a lot to make me cry, as has been said um, in the past. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't mind. I get a lot of hate on Twitter and a lot of hate on uh, YouTube comment sections, but every time that I see them, um, I, I just think to myself that I've been called a lot worse by a lot better people and it doesn't make me lose any sleep. Thanks so much. And lifting vegan logic. Appreciate your question. Said so many carnis noob in this chat. LOL. Taking a jab at the chat. I like it. All right. Par paradigm shift music. Thanks for your question. Said facts and logic always trumps 
carnist nonsense. Lifting vegan logic. Alex is well-read, and he will always get to the point. Thanks to everyone for this. We can't thank the debaters enough. The debaters are the lifeblood of the channel, and so we have to thank them as well. And remind you folks, they're linked in the description. And Spider the ATO, thank you for your super sticker. Appreciate it. Germania, thank you for your question. Says Cosmic, though I'm currently a meat eater, I realize I have cognitive dissonance to be against animal cruelty, yet still I eat meat. I have many questions I'd like to ask you, like the morality of killing insects. Maybe in the future, take care. Yeah, uh, well, thanks. I mean, there's there's a lot to say on on insects. Um, one of the things to note is that uh, insect farming is, environmentally speaking, incredibly unsustainable and probably does more harm than than it it's it's worth. Again, the question would be whether we actually really need to be doing this, um, which I I don't think we do. But I'm I'm glad to hear that you're um, kind of self admittedly in a state of cognitive uh, cognitive dissonance, as was I, as are most people who uh, do transition to a plant-based lifestyle, there's at least some period in which they're convinced by the argumentation but haven't taken the step yet. I'd recommend taking it one meal at a time. You'll understand absolutely how easy it is. And after a month or two, you'll, you'll struggle to believe you ever ate animal products in the first place. Thanks so much. And Thomas Roth, appreciate your question. This is super interesting. I love this question. They said, Alex, do you see any problem with buying clothes made from animals secondhand? Now, the way I interpret that is I think there may maybe meaning it was clothing made from animals, but you're buying mm -hmm. it from a thrift shop. So it's been uh, already purchased from the manufacturer. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't think it's like strictly unethical to do so um, in the sense that like uh, it's certainly not as bad as paying for a pig to be forced into a gas chamber. The, the one reason why I would refrain from, from doing, well, there are two reasons why I would refrain, but only one moral reason. There's an aesthetic reason, which is that I just don't want to wear these products. I find it fairly disgusting in the same way that I wouldn't want to wear the skin of a human who I knew had been tortured and killed for the sake of my convenience. I mean, look, if, if people aren't convinced that, you know, being kind of being able to be healthy on a plant-based diet is enough of a reason not to exploit animals for them. I, I think that like it should be blindingly obvious that we don't have the right to torture an animal for the sake of some clothing. That should be the most obvious thing in the world. But when it's secondhand, you're not directly contributing to the suffering. The one reason I wouldn't buy it is this. If somebody is looking for a leather jacket, if they walk into that thrift shop and they see that leather jacket, they might buy it. If I buy that jacket, then they won't see that jacket and they might go and buy another one. They're going to go and buy one new, right? So for any, any person who's looking to buy a leather jacket or looking to buy some suede shoes or something, if I take that particular option away from them, they can't buy that secondhand product anymore. They're more likely to go and buy new. So I'd rather they bought that secondhand product and I go and buy a denim jacket than I buy the secondhand leather jacket and they go and buy a new leather jacket as well because that's two jackets instead of one. Uh, for that reason, I still wouldn't buy the product, but I don't think it's like, uh, an, an ethical atrocity and similar proportions to buying it directly. You got it. Thanks so much. And friendly, uh, well, I should say maybe for the first time, if you hadn't seen in the chat, folks, I want to say we appreciate all of your questions. Thank you. I, I do want to mention that just because we want to get the debaters out here, out of here in a, a timely manner, we want to ask, we will, I promise we'll invite them back. And so hopefully there'll be a, a chance for questions in the future. But if you are able to hold off on any more questions, just because we want to get them out of here in a decent time, we've got, not too many more left, but we still have a number. So, uh, Gur, we got that one. Thank you, Daver, who said, is it okay to kill plants because they, as you say, are not sentient or aware? Would it be ethical for a sniper to kill when the victim is unaware of the death coming? How about killing a sleeping person? Uh, no, because, of course, they're failing to take into consideration the 
uh, well, firstly, the the life that will be uh, restricted from that person living from the point onwards from them being killed. And there's some ethical debate about whether death is bad for the person who dies. I, I'm of the opinion that it's not intrinsically bad. I think that if somebody were to kind of shoot me in the back of the head and I didn't feel any pain and I died immediately, that wouldn't be bad for me because there'd be no need for it to be bad for. But it would certainly be bad, at least I hope it would be bad for my friends and family. Um, and that alone should be enough of a consideration to prevent somebody from doing so. Whereas if a plant is sentient and neither is any of that plant's friends, then I don't think there's anything to cry about when it gets uprooted. You got it. Thank you very much. Jerry Penlick, thank you, said, not eating meat causes me mental suffering. I want the chicken. Should we not first eliminate human suffering before eliminating animal suffering? Uh, I think that that question is being asked in a frivolous manner. I don't think that anybody's actually suffering from the fact that they crave some chicken. Uh, if you are, then I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can help you if you're somebody who genuinely can't live without cheese, can't live without bacon, can't live without chicken, then I think that, um, frankly, you need to grow up. Um, you can. It's incredibly easy to live without cheese. The, the method is as follows. Step one, stop eating it. That's it. That's all you have to do. Um, it may kind of suck, but I promise you, I promise you that it sucks more to be forced into a gas chamber. And if you think that the fact that you crave some chicken and aren't able to get it and can satiate your hunger with a vegan alternative that may not taste quite as good, but still tastes pretty good. If you think that that suffering is in any way morally comparable to the suffering that animals go through on factory farms, then you either know nothing about factory farming or know nothing about ethics. Thank you very much. And Troids117 said, Cosmic, do you consume spices, alcohol, weed, etc.? Then you kill animals for favor, pleasure, through crop death and transportation death. Um, well, uh, firstly, there are a, a multitude of websites that are popping up, such as barnivore.com, which will tell you whether or not your alcohol is vegan friendly. And you can bet that I'm on it every single time I'm in the supermarket deciding to buy a bottle of red. Um, of course, animals are killed in transportation, but they're also killed in transportation for anything. So that's got nothing to do with kind of the consumption of alcohol or cannabis. Um, that's just a problem inherent to, uh, you know, cars on the road, which we already talked about earlier, we we apply consistently a moral principle, or at least I do, uh, with humans and non-human animals when it comes to the benefit of being able to travel. So if you're talking about animal death in traveling and, and delivery services, then that's already been addressed. Um, if you're talking about the fact that some of these products contain non-vegan products, then as a vegan, I wouldn't be consuming them. Gotcha. And Japexican007 says, Christ is already given us the blueprint to live forever and have no pain and suffering love god and love thy neighbor as yourself as well as be without sin we just refuse to concede this truth and uh let's see we uh daver thank you for your question said cosmic would you be okay taking the bullet for the animal taking the bullet would be vegan uh, be vegan in the sense that a vegan has no ethical restriction in choosing to do so, but I don't think they have an obligation to do so. Of course not. I, I don't think you have an obligation to, to take a bullet to save another human being. I think it would be a virtuous thing to do, but I don't think you have an obligation to do it. Of course not. You bet. And Cider and Port, we're, we're almost there, guys. I know we've got a lot of questions. Thanks for your patience. Uh, Cider and Port said, after show at 4 p.m., open room, smoky comment. When you get there, I'll post a link for you to join. You actually had a good debate. Talk soon. Samal Weehy, thank you for your question, said, what should we do if we found that plants had the capacity to experience pain and suffering? 
uh, continue to eat them directly instead of growing even more to kill even more to then feed the livestock to then kill the livestock to then eat the livestock. Um, yes, it is a shame that uh, you know suffering is endemic to life, um, but the best we can do is try to minimize it. And the way to minimize it, if plants can feel pain, is to eat as little uh, or as few plants as possible. Uh, and the way to do that is to adopt a plant-based lifestyle. Thanks so much. Honest Abe says there is no rational argument against veganism, but I accept being immoral in this instance because I still love my meats and dairy products. So what do you, uh, out of curiosity, Cosmic, just because I do actually, once in a while, uh, a local, a regular debater here once told me, he said, I think that vegans are right. They have the, the most sound arguments, but I, I'm just a bad person. And he seems to be, uh, I'm not sure if he's being, I think he's being sincere. Uh, what do you say to a person like that? That they agree with me. My my ethical position here is that it's immoral to unnecessarily harm animals, and they're agreeing that that's the case. It's a separate question, um, the question of kind of psychological motivation of, of what to do. I mean, it, it, it's exactly the same reaction I'd have on any other ethical issue that possibly exists. Choose any ethical issue you love, like, you know, be it murder or rape or domestic if you like. If someone said, listen, I... I agree with you, I hear your, your argumentation, I just, I, I, I know that domestic abuse is wrong, but man, don't I just love the feeling when I knock my wife in the face. Um, what, what can you say to someone like that? Except, I, I'm glad that at least you recognize that what you're doing is wrong, now it's time to grow up and actually change your actions according. Like, it, it's a very, it's a very kind of, um, it's almost seen as this kind of virtuous thing that I see a lot of people doing. I see the Sam Harris's and the Richard Dawkins doing it too, where they say, you know, I recognize that veganism is right, but I'm not myself a vegan, but I recognize that's a, that's a moral flaw within myself. And everyone goes, wow, that's so, that's so humble. That's so, you know, that's so good of them to recognize and be honest about their moral shortcomings. It's like, you know, it would be a lot better if they gave up their addiction to the taste of bacon and cheese for the sake of not just the animal cruelty, but also the environmental problem, antibiotic resistance, pandemic prevention, and one of the best things you could do for your health is a little cherry on top. Um, if you are still saying something to the effect of, I understand that all of these considerations, and we haven't even delved in to the issues of pandemic prevention and antibiotic resistance, which, by the way, will ruin us, medically speaking, and one of the biggest contributors to them is animal agriculture. If your response is something like, yeah, I get it, but man, don't I just love some bacon, then don't try and call yourself an ethicist. Uh, can, can I respond to that real quick too, James? It's super short and pithy. Okay, yeah, um, I see it. If, if you're being kind of consistent on that point in that framework, then you kind of have to say, let's get rid of all alcohol and tobacco. Because the only reason those things exist is for the sake of personal pleasure. And those cause animal suffering by the cultivation of them, even, you know, base level. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Next up, thank you for your question. This one comes in from Isaac Strangborn said, question for Smokey, if we found an alien race on Mars, which were more likely... Uh, which are more like non-human animals here on Earth, would we be morally okay to farm them? The, the pure nature of it being extraterrestrial will put it to a level of societal value beyond that type of consideration. You got it. Brenton Langle, thanks for your question. This is the last of three that we have remaining. said, uh, fellow vegan, by the way, says, people don't realize how evil the food industry is. The will to profit causes more cruelty than there otherwise would be to humans and other animals. Next, thanks, Nick, for your question. Said, is it morally acceptable to eat roadkill? Uh, for the same reason that I wouldn't be in favor of eating, of, of purchasing secondhand animal products, I, I wouldn't like to do so. Um, firstly, I think it's a bit disgusting. But secondly, bear in mind that uh, if there is roadkill on the side of the road, if I go and eat that roadkill, 
then I'm preventing wild animals from going and scavenging on that meat who will potentially then go and starve, uh, which means that more animal suffering will actually be caused by it. I'd rather leave it there for uh, the the for, for, for the wild animals. You could say that kind of level one veganism, as I've framed this before, level one veganism is to say you can't eat roadkill, it's an animal product. Level two veganism might be to say something like, look, I recognize it's about animal suffering, not just about animal products, so it's okay to eat the roadkill. Level three is to say, well, if it's about animal suffering, then you should care about the wild animals who could be scavenging on its body. Level four veganism might be something like carrying around some meat alternatives with you so that if you find some roadkill, you take the roadkill, you leave some meat alternatives to the wild animals, and therefore everyone's satiated. Uh, maybe level six veganism would be opening up a restaurant on the side of a busy road and just kind of waiting to find out what the special of the day would be. Um, it kind of goes on forever. Uh, but <laughs> for those various reasons, I would still abstain from eating, not because of the direct effect of eating that product, um, but because of the contingencies that surround it. You got it. Thanks so much. And final question. Reminder, our guests are linked in the description, folks. So check those links out. And Ralph Ellis, thank you for your question. Said, Alex, the study you cite has vast erratum and does not consider such factors as ranching on non-arable land, its associated diet. Um, I'm not sure which of the studies that they're referencing there. Um, I'd recommend reading the studies in their entireties rather than commentaries from uh, from from kind of hostile organizations, because I imagine someone who's actually read the study would say something like that. I can promise you that the studies are very well formulated, uh, very aware of various kind of counterexamples that could be put forward and very uh, cogently put, certainly more so than, I'm afraid to say, the question we just received. You got it. And I want to say thanks, everybody, for your questions. Thanks for hanging out with us. It's been a true pleasure. We hope you feel welcome, whether you be vegan, non-vegan, no matter what walk of life you were from. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Want to let you know as well. Sorry we didn't get to all the questions. Is We do want to respect the time of the debaters. Everybody's very busy. And so we do want to let you know that we absolutely will invite them back. And so if you have extra questions that you want to just jot down in a, a journal or something, we're going to ask next time as well. And so we really do appreciate it. We want to say thanks so much for being here. I'll be back with a post credit scene in a minute as we're having a triple th- a triple header today. So this is the first of three epic debates today. And so I'll be back with more details on that. And so thank you so much, though, Alex and Smokey. It's been a true pleasure to have you with us today. Pleasure was mine. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. As mentioned, I'll be right back, folks. Thanks so much for all of your Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.